you learn to live a life with, with no excuses. And I think that's one of the things that we do today in our society is so awful for kids is that we we give them excuses to make. Right. It isn't even that we listen to their excuses. We give them excuses. Right. You know, oh, he's this or oh, he's that or oh, he's this. Or that. And it's like, how hard would it be for every failure in your life to continue going on if for every failure it's someone else's fault? No doubt. Or you want to blame somebody else or you want to blame your circumstances or blame that. I, I think we do our kids a horrible disservice when we don't make them accountable. Right. Hey, you were born in whatever. I mean, Warren Buffett calls it the ovarian lottery. Welcome to the Never Stop Getting Better podcast powered by Guardian Caps. Guardian Caps are a one-size-fits-all helmet cover that help reduce impact for your players during practice. Coach Perry is a huge proponent of Guardian Caps after using them at Pearl High School, and it was one of the first football items he purchased when taking the job at Nick. Caps are mandated by the NFL for O-line, D-line, linebackers, tight ends, and running backs, and utilized by over 270 colleges, over 3,000 high schools, and over 600 youth programs across the country. As helmets become more and more expensive, the Guardian Caps also do a great job of protecting your helmet investment. See the link in our show notes for more information on Guardian Caps. In each episode, John takes you on a journey of growth, learning, and endless improvement. Whether you're an athlete, coach, or someone simply just striving to get better, this podcast is for you. Now, here's your host, John Perry. All right, welcome to the show today. I have a guest that's going to knock your socks off, I promise you. It's one Rick Jones, the greatest high school coach in America. He is currently the assistant to the head coach at Missouri, but I want to, you know, tell you a few more things about Rick Jones. He's got 45 years in the coaching field. He's got 31 years as a head coach. He's been a college assistant at Missouri State. He's been the head coach at several different high schools in Oklahoma and at Greenwood High School was his most current high school coaching job. Check this record out. 317 and 74. You would think I would be making that up, right? But I'm not. State champion nine times, state runner-up five times, 16-time coach of the year, uh, eight state championships, three runners-up, 12 conference championships. Um, he's in the Hall of Fame in Oklahoma um, as of 2013. He was named the Arkansas Democrat Zaget uh, Gazette, State Coach of the Year in 2013, Positive Coaching Alliance 2016 National Double Coaching Award. He's a Harding University Athletic Hall of Fame member, which we share the Harding University part in common. We do not share the Hall of Fame. He must have been better than me. Um, the 2017 Semper Fidelis Coach of the Year Award, the 2019 AFCA Power of Influence Award, this guy is absolutely amazing, and you're going to absolutely love the treasure that he is for the next several minutes. Welcome to the show, and thank you for being here. <laughs> Thanks, Coach. There's nowhere to go but down after that introduction. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> well, I was thinking before we got on here, there was a college coach who got fired before he got hired for lying on his resume. And when I, when I look at that bio, I told my wife last night, like he's gotta be making up half of this stuff because it makes me feel pretty insignificant as a coach. But I do know because we have become friends. I met you at a clinic in Orlando, Florida 
five, six, seven years ago, and I was introduced to you because you were a Harding graduate. I was a Harding graduate, and from that, we cultured up a friendship that has been phenomenal, and you have made me better. My first question, um, from your years of experience, and you know, it's fantastic, throughout your time as a coach and all the coaches that you have visited, what are some of the skills or the behavior traits of some of the most successful, whether it be coach, uh, business people, teachers, administrators, like whatever, what are some of the skills of the most successful people that you've been around? That's, that's an interesting question. I, I really think that it, it's different for everybody. Every, everybody has their own skill sets and things like that. I think that probably one thing that'll stand out is focus. Uh, people that are, it, and what I mean by that is the ability to truly focus and concentrate. It's sort of a tunnel vision. Uh, I've been accused of tunnel vision many times, but it's just that mentality of you are on a mission and nothing is going to stop you. I watched Nick Saban when he came to visit our school to talk to our quarterback. He sure wasn't there to talk to me. But I, I just watched how he went about his job. He had no... Uh, I would say, and I don't mean it sounds negative. I don't mean it that way. There's no personal warmth. He was there on business. It was business. He right. didn't want to sign autographs. He didn't want to take pictures. He didn't want to make nice with the fans who had heard that he was going to be there. So they just happened to go by a practice that day, about 150 of them in Greenwood, Arkansas. And he wanted to watch practice, watch our quarterback perform. He wanted to have that. Uh, I'm not saying he instigated this, but there was an accidental bump that did happen where he got a chance to actually look the kid in the eyes. And, uh, and the thing that was interesting is that as we're in our office visiting, it is, is just business. He is laser beam focused on making evaluation of that quarterback and, and everything else be darned. He didn't really care. Now, the thing that did get him that I thought was interesting is that um, – he got on the board and started talking about defensive secondary play and about how to adjust this and adjust that. And he is like a whole different demeanor came right. over him. And, and I thought it was just so interesting because it's business, business, business. And when he got football, it's like he, he totally changed his demeanor and his, I don't know, personality, but just his, his overall body language and everything was so, was so different. I found that to be really, really fascinating because ultimately you, it, it, I used to tell kids, follow your passion. That's bad advice. I think that's really bad advice because if you don't know what your passion is, you have nothing to follow. Passion does not come knocking on your grandma's basement door while you're playing video games. You got to get out in the world. You got to try. And I think I've given kids really bad information to say, follow your passion. But that being said, you got to find your passion. It's, it doesn't necessarily come knocking on your door. You've got to go find it. That means, it, to me, it means that if I don't know what I want to do when I finish high school, then I need to just, I need to get a job and live life. Don't sure. go waste my parents' money on college if I'm going to be, you know, changing, you know, majors every three or four semesters or whatever. But you got to have that. It, you, you have to. You, I don't know if you can be great at something you hate. Sure. And I, I, I don't know if there's ever any, there's ever been an example of that. Um, but 
it, it also means that you're not going to necessarily just find your passion. You don't right. get hit over the head with a crowbar and that's your passion and you follow it for the rest of your life. I think probably from the time I was a third grader, I knew that I wanted to be involved in football. And, and I don't know that, I, I mean, consciously, I know I didn't make a decision to be involved in football for my entire life <laughs> to speak of, over 60 years now as we speak. But I don't, whatever success we have is, is going to be based to a certain extent on, you know, do you like what you're doing? Right. I mean, you could not do 45 years of something you didn't like and, and be good at. I don't just see how that could happen at all. And I think that uh, the thing that I see among successful people is they have a focus, they have laser beam focus ability to accomplish whatever they need to accomplish. And you don't, they don't quit easily. Uh, they're not, they're not uh, rerouted. They are laser beam focused on what they're trying to do. And, and there is a passion there. I'm not against passion. Sure. Uh, I don't think we'd be great if, I don't think I could be a, a, even a decent football coach if I didn't love football. Sure. And I didn't love people and I didn't love kids and, and football players. But I think that the advice that I've given in the past to follow your passion is not very is not very good advice when you when you they don't know what their passion is. You know, I feel like I've had this conversation before. I was several years ago, I had Brian Kite in the vehicle taking him back to an airport and I asked him, what would you advise my daughter who was getting ready to go into college at the time? Um, so this five or six years ago. And I started saying, you know, she has a passion for special needs kids. And maybe that's what she needs to go into school and study because she's passionate about it. And he said the exact same thing. He said, that's terrible advice. He said, because that passion, when she wakes up, you know, and she's in an argument with her husband and the kid's crying, you know, and sick and, you know, like, where's that passion then? You know, the passion's gone. You know, he said, what you ought to do with all of your kids is make them take a job that they absolutely hate and make them go every single day and let them learn how to build the skills necessary to be successful, which are plenty, you know, being persistent, being resilient, being able to do things you don't like to do, you know, and, you know, there's parts of Nick Saban's job, when you say focus, he is focused, and I will guarantee you there's parts of his job he don't like. Yeah. There's lots of parts of his job he probably don't like, but, you know, the other skills that it takes to be successful, you know, he can dial, on, dial in on them pretty well. Next question, growing up, and I found this interesting, you moved a lot as a kid. You know, some people say they moved a lot, and it hurt them, they were upset, they had trouble, you know, making, and you don't really claim that all the moving hurts you, you know, what would you, what's your, you know, you moved a lot as a kid, you know, why did you move and what did you learn from, you know, living in seven or eight different places as you went to 12 grades? Well, I think the thing that is interesting about it is that when you're a kid, if your parents don't make a big deal out of something, it's not a big deal. You know, I'd come home from school, mom say, hey, we're moving. Okay. I mean, you didn't know that everybody in the world wasn't living the same way you were. And, you know, once you got a little bit older, you figured out, hey, why, why have I moved seven times in 12 years of school? And, uh, but 
there were there were long stretches where we spent in Duncan, Oklahoma, and, and we finished high school, lived three years in Ardmore before we went to college. But I mean, we went. You know, I went to school in West Texas. I went to school in New Mexico. I went to school in Oklahoma. Um, growing up, we didn't make a big deal out of it. It's just that's the way it was, and we just figured that's it. Our, our parents didn't make honestly didn't make a big deal about it. Didn't have us visit with counselors or anything before before we left. Right. Uh, I think I think the good and bad is that it it still always boils back to football. I think that's the thing that's sort of crazy about it because. When we moved to Duncan, the first thing that we, one of the first things we did in, in the third grade was dress up in our football uniforms and went to the uh, Mark Twain Elementary School when they were having Mighty Mike practice and try to join the team. Right. You know, that's what we did. We didn't know anybody. We, no one knew us. But we, we were going to try to get on that team. They didn't let us because we were too young. They didn't start until the fourth grade. So every time we played the Mark Twain Rough Riders, we tried to give them a little <laughs> bit extra <laughs> because of that. Then we moved across town, went to school at Will Rogers, and we're still too young to play, but we did exactly the same thing. We got on our bicycles, put our football uniforms on, and uh, went up there and uh, met probably the most influential coach of my life, a man named Hammer Prestige. He owned the janitorial supply business there in Duncan, Oklahoma. And uh, we said, hey, we'd like to play football. And he said, okay. And even though we were third grade and second grade, which is too young, uh, he, let us, he let us go ahead and do it, and that was it. So we've always had a connection through football. I went to college at Harding, like you mentioned. Uh, but I, I mean, the main, I wouldn't say the only reason, but 99% of the reason I even went to college was to become a, Coach, sure, and so I wanted to be a football college football player too. So I walked on at Harding, and I knew one person. I knew the trainer. Uh, that was the only guy I knew. I'd actually run across him when we were in Duncan, Oklahoma. So I knew the trainer. That's the only person I knew. I didn't know anybody else. My roommate was from Florida, at, or actually from uh, Claxton, Georgia, and uh, my second roommate was from Florida. I didn't know anybody when I got there other than the trainer. But football's, you know, is like. I had a hundred. I had a hundred brothers on just sure. in one day. No doubt. And it's like you're never an outsider because you always had each other, and that's sort of the way it was in, in high school too. Because we moved to we moved to Duncan. Like I said, we tried to join the Mighty Might team. We got on the Mighty Might team, and all of a sudden I had thirty friends. <laughs> and then uh, you go to uh, you get we go to Ardmore, and the first thing we did when we went to Ardmore, I was going to be a sophomore. My brother's going to be a freshman. Uh, we go to the football coach. Hey, when's practice? You know, what, when are we doing? What are we doing? And, and once we start practice, it's like a social thing. Those are my friends. I mean, even to this day, 95% of the people I know are connected in some form or fashion to football, and the other 5% is church. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just the way it is. That's, that's the way uh, it, when you say it, it, it's a football life, uh, that book's already been written. Right. Over. That's sort of what it is. It's football life. You, my friends are coaches, or, or I, I know people connected football. I mean, my best friends are either coaches or somebody that I have met through the game of football. It's like the seven degrees or five degrees at Kevin Bacon. Uh, I can't, you can't get in a room. I know you can't either. You can't get in a room with 50 coaches anywhere in this country and not find connections sure. between one coach to another coach to another coach. And that's that's one of the things I love about the business 
And, and I love, I mean, I just love high school coaches specifically, but I, coaches have been so good to me. I think that's part of it. I, I mean, in, in my world, I got, I got to spend an hour with Nick Saban. Who can sure. say that? I mean, who can say that? Barry Switzer. Sure. He spent in my office, had his feet up on my desk. I mean, Pat, Pat Jones, Jimmy Johnson, you know, guys that are, you know, high up on the, on the food chain of football coaches. And it's, it's, they, I mean, the truth is, none of them came to see me. You know, right. They came to see guys I, I was coaching. And that goes back to the kids. And I think about all the great kids. Uh, when we did the uh, speech at the AFCA several years ago, I just sat down and wrote, counted up in an estimate of how many young men I have coached directly in football. And at that time, it was around, I think, 1,700. Wow. Directly. Indirectly in the neighborhood of 10,000. Uh, you know, the old quote by, by Billy Graham is that a football coach will influence more people in, in a year than, than a normal person will in a lifetime. Well, what about a guy that could influence coaches? Right. You know, how, how many people could he have ultimate influence on if he had the ability to influence and impact coaches in a positive way? And that sort of... Uh, as I transition off the field and the job that I have now and the job that I, I, I look sure. at in the future, I want to be I want to be in a position in some form or fashion to help coaches. And I don't – it isn't because I'm smart. It's because I'm dumb. Sure. And I want guys to avoid the stupid things that I have done uh, over the 45 years that I've been a coach. I look back at some of the things – I mean – We've won some. We won some championships. That is true. And, and people that know me will tell you. You know, say how many? How many state championships you won? I said zero. Uh, I didn't block a single block. <laughs> I didn't throw a single pass. I didn't make a tackle. Uh, and, and the truth of the matter is, if I'd have coached better, I, I, the vertical pronoun that I like to avoid, I coached better. We'd have won more than we did. Sure. Uh, there were two that we left out there for sure. If we. You know, if, if I would have coached better, so that it's it's hard to take any credit for that because it's such football, such the ultimate team sport. I just happened to be there on the sidelines when that happened. Well, I'm gonna tell you one of the things that I was drawn to you first and foremost because of, and I probably never shared this at that clinic in Orlando five, six, seven years ago, whenever it was. We are sitting in a session with Brian Kite. And you are a guy who, you know, you're a little, a couple years older than me, <laughs> and you have a lot more state championship rings than me. And I have been very observant in this business that I am. A lot of times the guys that become ultra successful will go to clinics and they will hang out in the hallway and they will talk, schmooze, you know, have fun. And in that classroom with Brian Kite, you were sitting on the front row. You were taking notes as if you were 18 years old and just getting started. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, like it, it just stood out that, you know, this, this guy has every reason in the world to let his ego run, you know, wild, but yet he's on the front row taking notes as if his life depends on it. And that is what drew me to you in the first place that you are a very influential human being that is a lifelong learner, you know? And that is, 
you know, I don't think that's common. I don't think that's common in our field. I don't think that's common among people that win multiple state championships or run multiple companies, you know, that are, you know, great. I think that's um, what's drawn me to you. Let me ask you this. Let me, let me correct you. Yes. I never sit on the front row. I never sit on the front row. And there's a reason for it. I went to, I, I am a front row guy. I'll tell you the <laughs> truth because my brain wonders and I have a tiny little brain and I can't let it wonder. So I want to be focused 100% on the speaker. And, and I'm not going to be there if I don't want to be there. Sure. I'm going to tell you, I, I used to go to clinics and I'd go to every speech. But, but as I got older, I was, I was, if there was a guy that I really didn't want to listen to, then I'd be out in the hallway and I'd be trying to strike up a conversation sure. with somebody I didn't want to listen to. Uh, I sit on the second row, and the reason for that is there was a, one of the great offensive line coaches in history named Buck Nostrum. Spoke down in Dallas. <laughs> he spoke <coughs> at the Kellogg Clinic in Dallas, and that was the clinic in its day. And we're talking early 70s. And I used to sit on the front row. I mean, that, that's what I did. I sat on the front row, and I took it. I take notes. And the guy sitting next to me, one of those guys, he had his polyester shorts. He had his two top <laughs> socks. He had his uh, polo that said coach there on the left breast. And Buck Nystrom is going to speak for 45 minutes at that clinic on the drive block. His, his topic was the drive block. It was, and I'm an old line guy. It was incredible. But he took this poor sap sitting next to me <laughs> to do demonstrations and, and commenced head slapping him, underhooking him. <laughs> he beat that poor fella to death. And I told myself, I'm going to go second row from now. <laughs> I'm not going to subject myself to this type of abuse because I saw it. And the older coaches out there that listen to this will get a chuckle out of that because if you ever heard Buck Nashman speak, right in the middle of the, of the speech, he, he spit his bridge work 10 rows deep into the audience. He had no teeth. His, his teeth were out in the audience, and he just kept on going. And he is coaching up the fire out of that drive block. And I... I will never forget that poor guy. They should have paid that guy for the bodily harm that he endured. His butt head slapped him, underhooked him, underripped, overripped. It was uh, it was fantastic. And I told myself, I am not taking that abuse. I'm going to sit on the second row. So you, I would have been on the second row, not the front row, just to make things perfectly clear. All right, let me ask you this. That's awesome. That's an awesome story, and, and I must have been mistaken. It was the second row instead of the first <laughs> row, but you must have been interested because you were steady taking notes when a lot of people were not. And, you know, another thing I love is when, you, when you're at a clinic, and I have benefited from this, you know, instead of, you know, the night getting into the nightlife and going out and doing, you know, whatever, 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 you're going to be talking football or life with somebody, you know, and you're not going to be messing around with all the crap. And man, I have, I have enjoyed that myself from time to time. The power of a coach. We've talked about the power of a coach. One of my favorite stories that I've ever heard, and it relates to the power of a coach, is I don't know what grade you were in, but when you were given the the very nice helmet, um, could you share that story? Well, it's like I mentioned earlier. We moved from Duncan, Oklahoma, to Ardmore, Oklahoma. It's about 45 miles. Part and they were semi-rivals. Uh, Ardmore's real rival was eight at the time, and Duncan's real rival was Lawton, but they, they were semi-rivals. 
So people looked at me with sort of skepticism anyway because I was from Duncan. I was an old Duncan demon. I don't know if they're still demons or not, but I assume they are. But anyway, it, it's, it's so funny just how things have changed. But Coach Gillum, our head coach, uh, was, as I look back at it, rest his soul, he was a wonderful man. And he, he liked me. I knew, I knew he liked me deep down. <laughs> just way, way, way sure. deep down. <laughs> But we get, we're getting our equipment, and I got a helmet that was in – people that are Oklahoma fans will remember the square-eared helmets that they had back in the old days. Oh, you used to wear them. But the helmet had to be – you know, it was 20 years old. And they put it on me. It was one of those old Riddell suspension helmets. I think that's <clears> on my forehead they did it in right. to this very day. But they, the first time I run into anybody in practice – the helmet just shattered into hundreds of pieces just on the ground. And I'm just sitting there with basically the suspension aspect of it. So go in, I get another helmet. And the next day, the exact same thing happened. I just hit somebody and my helmet just shattered into pieces. And so the next day, day three, I go in and it just so happened Coach Gillum wasn't in the equipment room. It was assistant coach Tips. Uh, Ronnie Tips, a lot of people know Coach Tips. He coached in Oklahoma and in uh, Texas for years and years. Wonderful, wonderful man. And, uh, or is Coach Williams, actually. Our O-line guy gave me a brand new bike helmet. Mm. A bike helmet. And it actually had padding in it. And I remember going out to practice field and I'm just floating on the air. I mean, I've got this brand new helmet and I'm feeling good about myself and I hear somebody yell, Johnson! Where'd you get that helmet? <laughs> and I thought, uh-oh. I said, uh, Coach Williams gave it to me. And he said, Dad, come it. He didn't say Dad, did he? said, Chuck, I told you don't put those helmets on bumble butts. And uh, that, that sort of hurt my countenance for the rest of practice. And I went, at some point in practice, I jogged past Coach Gillum, <laughs> veteran of the Battle of the Bulge. <laughs> and he said, $42 helmet? 42 cent player. <laughs> and I, I have always thought of myself as a 42 cent player from that day forward. Uh, they didn't give those coaches back in those days a lot of uh, sure. mental training and psychological sure. <laughs> development and things like that. He, uh, he had, uh, like I say, he had fought the Battle of the Bulge and, and he was rough. <laughs> he sure. Was, he was a hard man, and he, he didn't like giving out those $42 helmets to mm-hmm. butts like me. Well, let me ask you this. <laughs> How did that – I know you're big on language. Language is huge. You know, how does something like that affect the way you talk to your kids, you know, at Greenwood High School or, you know, wherever you've been? Like, how, how does stories like that, you know – compound into what your beliefs are about the type of words that we use around the people that we're coaching. Uh, I, I think it's so important. Uh, people that have heard, heard me speak at clinics will, you know, they probably, they look at me with this puzzled look on their face. Like, why are you so passionate about that? Why are you so nuts about the words you use? And I say, because when I was a sophomore in high school, I was t- told that I was a 42 cent player. Right. Um, it's because when I was eight or nine years old, I'm in the end zone 
at halftime of a peewee game in our our assistant coach, our line coach used the B word, the bad B word. Right. That was 60 years ago. Mm. I remember it. I could walk you out to Jess Welch Field in Duncan, Oklahoma, where the Peewees played, the Mighty Might football program was, and I can show you where I was sitting when he used that word. Right. Um, and any coach that's coached for over a couple years, like you and I, have had instances where a player will come up and say, Coach, you just, I just want to thank you so much for what you told me 10 years ago when I was blah, 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 blah. And we hadn't thought about it in 10 years. Right. Because we're problem solvers. Sure. A kid comes in with a problem or you've got to take care of an issue with a kid and you say things that you think are appropriate or you hope are appropriate or you expect to be appropriate. And, and you might say something that changes a kid's life. You might you might tell him something or use a word that he will never forget for as long as he lives. I promise you, they will put me six feet under, and that will be when I don't remember that I'm a 42-cent player. Sure. That will be when I don't remember when Coach Ebanks used the B word in the end zone of a fifth-grade Mighty Mike game. Uh, don't tell me. It, don't tell me that words don't matter. And I and I tell coaches this and, and businessmen and, and workers that it it's words change your brain. It's like I talk about avoid the use of the vertical pronoun. Uh, and you say, okay, that's good, that's being unselfish, that's being a team oriented deal and, and not saying my program and my weightlifting and my offense and my players and my coaches and my staff. And now, <clears throat> when a coach says that, you know, you say it without thinking, but I don't. Right. I will. I, I will use vertical pronoun. I just used it in a sentence. Uh, I will say my this and my that. But when I focus on saying our program, when I focus on saying our offense, our players, our leadership committee, it changes my brain. It sure. changes the way I think. And I, I become less self-centered. Honestly, I do. No doubt. And, and I don't know that there's any scientific proof for that. Uh, I would assume that there probably is. Sure. Or it, it's yet to be discovered. But I just know how it changes my brain when I use what I call proper pronouns. When I use the right words. You know, we... We abolished the, the H word in Greenwood, Arkansas. <laughs> the one that starts with H, ends with T, and has O in the middle. We're not using that. That's an excuse. That doesn't mean that we don't follow protocols and all that that, that, that we're required by the state association to follow, but it just means we're not going to use that as an excuse. We're not going to talk all day about how bad the weather's going to be and then go out there and expect to have a great practice. We're going to practice. It's bulldog weather, man. It's bulldog weather. Bulldog weather. Um, we were at Edmond, Oklahoma, and I told this story to the Arkansas Coaches Association uh, last week. Uh, we're, we're at Edmond, Oklahoma. We're playing in the playoffs, round two, and we have a freak snowstorm. Six inches of snow on the ground, Edmond, Oklahoma. Just north of Oklahoma City. And uh, the kids come in, and they say, hey, are we going to the gym today? No. We're not going to the gym today. I said, and they're like, why? I said, well, do we play indoors or outdoors? Do we play in the gym? You know, and they and at that point in time, they sort of laughed it off and said, "Well, that guy's an idiot. We knew he's an idiot. <laughs> he's just now proven it." 
and we go out and we practice in six inches snow. And it's a horrible, crappy practice, you know, because half of them were mad that we weren't in the gym, the other half were slipping and sliding, falling around and all that. And you say, well, lessons learned. Well, the lessons learned were playing in the semifinals two weeks ago, or two weeks later, and uh, as I recall, we're playing Stillwater in the semifinals, and uh, we're down 14-7 middle third quarter, sleep, wind, rains, a mixture of both, this comes in, and I hear on the sidelines, our Scooby-Doo's are over there again. <laughs> bulldog weather, bulldog weather, bulldog weather. We, we rally and win 21-14. Guardian caps are lightweight, one-size-fits-all football helmet covers for practice. They reduce 20 to 33% of the impact, depending on the speed and the location. Great for the repetitive, subconcussive blows that add up throughout the week. Also great for body blows. Used by Clemson, Penn State, Washington, Oklahoma, 150 other colleges, and about 2,000 high schools across the country. Also protect that helmet. If your helmets are getting beat up at the end of the year, Guardian Caps can help protect that helmet investment. That's awesome. Is that because we went out in the snow two weeks later? Yeah. I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. And, and we had convinced them that all weather is bulldog weather. Sure. And I think it's a mental thing. We're going to talk about that in Tulsa in, in a, uh, next month about the mental aspect of it. I, I believe words change your brain. I, I just really do. Sure. Uh, and I believe that, like Billy Graham said, I think coaches have great impact on people. We have to be aware of that. We have to be when, – when I, I remember another <laughs> little occasion we had with Coach Gillum uh, we're at one of the opening season scrimmages and our linebacker gets hurt and I played linebacker and I was probably 15 at the time. And he mm. said, hey, we need a linebacker. And I raised my hand. And he said, Jonesy, I love your enthusiasm, but I can't stand your inexperience. And I said, coach, I'm getting no experience here, meaning on the bench. And he didn't take that very well. I didn't mean it to be a smart aleck, but it's just it, little things like that you know, how many times have I been condescending to a kid? Sure. I'm embarrassed. Sure. I'm embarrassed to count. How many times have I not challenged a kid, but just been personally not nice? And, and there's, I don't think in, in the coaching world there's, there's any place for being condescending. Right. I just don't think right. there is. I don't no think it's sarcasm. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. For one thing, yep. it doesn't work. Um, so I think we have to uh, understand the importance of our words. And, and, and I'll just say it right now, I don't believe, I don't believe you ought to use profanity. Right. And that's, if, if, if the good Lord will not forgive us for stubbing our toe on the way to the bathroom at two o'clock in the morning, then I'm in trouble. Sure. I'll just tell you the truth. But I don't think that we send mixed messages to our kids. So if we're going to have our priorities were always God, church, family, academics, football. Or God, God, or church, family, academics, football, everything else. Sure. And I, I don't believe that – I think there's some great coaches out there that use profanity. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying if your program is based upon a certain amount of principles, and if you have to tell your coaches – hey, be careful, Johnny's mom is at practice. That doesn't make sense to me. That's not being vertically aligned. That's not having all your ducks in a row. If you're going to use profanity, okay, 
I'm kidding. I, I coach with great coaches that use profanity. No big deal. Sure. But we're not going to be, and I think it's a little bit uh, disingenuous when you say, who, hey, this parent night now, we, we're, we're not going to, you know, we're not. Right. I just don't think that's what, hey, and I would tell our parents, I would tell our parents, you are always welcome to practice, but you need to be aware of something. It can get ugly. Sure. And I'm not saying about profanity. I'm just saying we're going to yell and we're going to scream and we'll probably say something to your poor little baby boy that you might not like. Sure. And if you don't like it, then I suggest you don't come. But we're not going to act differently right. because you're there or you're not there. We're going to coach you the way that we coach you, and that's that's the way it is. And I, I disagree with that. And if your philosophy is, hey, we're going to use profanity time, 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 time fine. Have at it, right. you know. But but don't have two different standards. Parent standards when they're there and normally when the parents aren't there. I don't think that I think that's confusing the kids. I think I think we need to give them one message and have brutal one hundred percent consistency in how we instill that message and those set of beliefs into those kids. Right. We are not going to have this rule for this day and another rule for the other day and whatever, whatever. No, we're going to coach and we're sure. going to coach hard. We're going to scream. We're going to yell. We're going to jump up and down. We're going to throw our cap. And in most cases, we're not going to use profanity. Sure. And if we are going to use profanity, that's fine. We're not going to change it because your parents are here. Right. I just don't see that there's a point. I don't think that it helps you become a better coach. So if we're not going to use it, we're not going to use it. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is or whether your parents are there or not. Well, I heard this a while back on a podcast. Urban Meyer said, um, and he was referring to some of that language, that sometimes the louder a coach or person screams, the more they're telling people how much they don't know, you know, or how much they – because they're not coaching, you know. Like sometimes, you know, it is, it is big, and language is really important. But what you're saying is when I was in Alito, Texas – with our quarterbacks, and it was 107 degrees that it was not hot. Mm-hmm. It was bulldog weather, yeah. or it was eagle weather, okay? Yeah. Now, I'm, I probably said the word hot a few times, I'm not gonna lie, because it was extremely I'm warm. I've been saying conversation <laughs> three times. I've banished it from my dictionary. I understand. Vocabulary. I understand, and you know what? I, when I got to Nixa uh, three years ago, I rolled into practice one day, it was below 30, I think, you know, right at 32, and it was raining, and it was, wind was blowing, and it was cold. Well, I walk in the field house, and all the kids are sitting in their lockers with smiles on their face, and they are, you know, we going to the gym, we going to that gym, or this gym, which gym we going to, and this and that, and the coaches, I believe the coaches, honestly, were thinking the exact same thing, and I was like, let's go practice, and they're just like, no, we don't do that. And I'm like, yeah, let's go practice. And we went out there. As the good Lord is my witness, there were two kids that day that refused to go outside and decided that they would quit football. They were not going to go outside, 32 degrees and raining in the wind, and they chose to not play football. And I will say it was the most miserable day that I've spent on a practice field in a long time. But the message was sent that we're going to practice football because, you know, we've – this year played a game in the playoffs where it was extremely cold, it was raining, it was windy, and the majority of our kids went out for warm-ups without a shirt on because 
you know, we're going to play. We're going to practice. We're going to we're going to get know, after. I heard I heard a great story because I at Greenwood we had an indoor, and that really gives you another problem. Sure. Because if it's lightning, go inside. You know, that's 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 a non-issue. Yep. But is it raining? What are you going to do? Because you can go outside and slop around, yep. and your best player can pull his hamstring because he hits a slip spot. Yep. Blah blah blah. You can give yourself all those rationalizations, or you can go inside that the taxpayers in the community have so <laughs> generously sure. paid for years, so that you can have an indoor to avoid practicing and all that stuff. And I've always thought about those are some of the hardest decisions to make as a coach. And I heard a story, and I, I thought it was really, really good and really, really pertinent to the issue is that in New England we we played Boston College a couple years ago when we practiced at their their facility their indoor facility and somebody said that it was the least used indoor facility in the history of the world <laughs> why is that because coach Belichick's gonna practice outside it just doesn't matter it doesn't matter how and it's probably worse than I would guess sure in uh, New England than it is sure <laughs> in Columbia Missouri but his, his answer is, is get your blank on and get out. Sure. Get out to practice. And at some point in time, there's just no question, you know. You, you reach the point when you're dealing with a guy that's so consistent over time, you don't say, are we in or out? Sure. You just say, get your stuff on. No doubt. Outside. And I heard that uh, Andy Reid, the year they won the Super Bowl, before the – when they were going to play the AFCA championship game, it is one of those horrible Kansas City days where it's just sleet and snow and wind and 28, 30 degrees, and it's just miserable outside. And uh, Coach Reed thought, the story goes, Coach Reed thought they'd probably need to go outside, you know, because the weather forecast was for similar weather on Sunday. And he said he went into the locker room, and he said, hey, man, we're going outside today. And the guys were like, okay. You know, there wasn't people, you know, screaming or crying or threatening to quit or right. whatever. And uh, and when he saw the response of his team, like, okay, that's fine. Sure. He said, ah, screw it. We'll go inside. <laughs> and, and I, right. And that's, that's good coaching on both sides. I mean, and I just thought, how interesting is that in our business? Because it's just – because we've got to have mentally tough teams. But when he went in there and he saw – Sure. Their, and I don't even know if it's a true story. Sure. But – uh, it was told to me as being the truth, and I thought, man, that's, that's really good coaching on both sides. Sure. Because, you know, probably nobody's tougher mentally than the New England Patriots, and obviously Andy Reid's record speaks for right. itself. And I think that's – it also gives a lesson in, in coaching or business management or whatever. you got to know your people. No doubt. you got to know the mentality of people. If you have a bunch of guys that are going to be whining and crying, they got to get their butt out there, and they got to practice in the slot. Sure. And that's just the way it is. Because once you get an indoor, that even complicates it further because then you look like a complete moron to have a horrible practice. Because normally, sure. if it was a bad Wednesday and it wasn't lightning, we just go out. We're going to go out on Wednesday. Thursday, our polish day, our perfect practice day, if it was bad, we'd go in. Just because right. I wanted to have a perfect sure. practice. It's just basically selfishly so that – uh, I could have a decent night's sleep. Sure. Well, let me ask you this. It's another story that I absolutely love. Sometimes we as coaches, you know, we all can think more of ourselves than we should from time to time. And I think you have 
Nick Saban comes to your office to visit and you're feeling pretty good about it. You know, you got, you got Nick Saban, man, the greatest, one of the greatest football coaches of all time. And I think you get a knock on the door or something, you know, like what, 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 you know, tell me about that. Well, like I'd mentioned earlier that when Coach Saban came by, he wasn't there on, on a joy ride. It was, it was no trip of joy whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It was work and he's up there He's actually, at that point in time, he's uh, telling me about writing his book because I had asked him if he'd sign, you know, sign and sign his book because I, I enjoyed his book. I enjoy reading about coaches. Sure. But anyway, he's that. That was the second time in our conversation during that time period that he really sort of perked up when he was telling me about writing this book and some of the stuff he had to go through, get it. And right in the middle of him telling me the story, I hear a knock on my door, and I ignored it. I didn't. I just wanted it to go away because he's right in the middle of the story. <laughs> and I mean, you can interrupt. You know, the president, vice president. I can interrupt them with no trouble. But Nick Saban, right? I'm, you know, right. I don't want to. I don't want. If he's on a roll, I'm just going to let him roll, sure. and I just hope the knock will go away. And then, oh, seconds later, he, he's still talking. He didn't even take a breath. He's just going. He is telling this great story, and I am one hundred percent into it. I hear. Bum, 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 bum. And I'm like, oh no. And finally, Coach Saban took a breath and I said, just a minute, Coach. And I go to the door and I am not lying. It is our 15 wide receiver. And he said, say, Coach, uh, is that cookie dough money due on Monday or is it due on Friday? <laughs> and, and I remembered. I remembered some clinic talks that I'd given about how we treat kids and how we treat kids with respect, whether they're starters or Scooby-Doo's or, or whatever. And I just said, I said, Bud, that that uh, that cookie dough money's due on Monday, okay? And he said, Yes, sir. <laughs> and that was that. And it made me think that all those stories and all that clinic talk that I clinic talks that I'd given about how we treat everybody the same and, and all that. That kid. To this day, never knows that he interrupted one of the great Nick Saban stories of all time. The last time I didn't, I will probably never talk to Nick Saban again. That was my only opportunity cut short by a cookie dough question. <laughs> hey, you know, it, it, it also makes me laugh because that's the real way it is. I remember walking down the ramp to the first game when we were at Columbia at the University of Missouri and our first opponent's Alabama. And I walked down that ramp and I look up on the 50-yard line there's Nick Saban with his elbows, you know, his sure. arms crossed, and he's in a sure. bad mood. <laughs> he's, he's, you know, it's, you know, about two hours before kickoff, an hour and a half before kickoff. And I, I thought about going up and renewing our our uh, our friendship, but I, I thought better of it. <laughs> well, I'm going I'm to say you thought about the you, – you also had the thought of the – Kid selling the no or doubt. wanting to know about the I cookie dough. I've never, <laughs> never seen Nick Saban that I don't think about the cookie dough. Sure. Well, let me ask you this. You know, you've been, you know, in the SEC for a couple of years. Tell me, tell us something that we think we know about the SEC or SEC football <laughs> that we really have no clue about. That's a great question. I don't know that there's, it's so obvious, the stuff that stands out is just so obvious is that the the speed of of the game is incredible. And I know that if 
if I if I was on the sidelines of an NFL game, it would be even the next level. Sure. But like I say, when you see Alabama and Georgia and Florida and those guys, and you just see this the speed of the game. I, we coached 39 years of high school football, and uh, I never got run over on the sideline. We've been there three years at the University of Missouri. I've been run over twice. Wow. Um, now, part of that is my diminished abilities. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'm getting a little bit slower sure. in my reaction time. But, I mean, a kid from Kentucky uh, two years ago just smoked me. Wasn't even, wasn't even pretty. I, when you look up and you see your feet, that's when you know you're in sure. a bad way. But. It's so it's so cliche to say that, but the kids are so. The, I guess part of the deal is too, is that the mentality of those kids. I, I love our kids to death because they, they're, they're old-fashioned warriors. They're sure. old-fashioned gladiators because they're not afraid of anybody. Right. I mean, they have no fear. They and they. They enjoy the competition, and that's probably underrated because of transfer portals and NIL and blah, 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 and social media. But I tell you what, for the most part, they go out there and they lay it on the line, and they ball. They ball. They run, and they hit, and they give it great effort, and they they work their tail off throughout the week to get to be in that position. But I think... And everybody knows that. Everybody knows Division One football, and everybody knows the SEC. Either. But the, it's the speed of the game. But I think it's also they, our kids love it. They love the game. Not, it's they're probably like a lot of us. They don't love the, the time leading up to the game all that well. But they're they're not afraid of anybody. I mean, Alabama, Georgia, it does not matter. They go. They they came to the University of Missouri to play those guys. Sure. That's one of the reasons they want to play. They want to test themselves against the best. And I and I know that that's not a <laughs> a secret or something that people didn't know, but just the the fearlessness and the the warrior mentality of those guys. Sure. And I, you know, and I was kind of hoping you'd say that because there's a lot of people that's never been to an SEC game. You know, they watch SEC football, but SEC football on the SEC network is not the same as being live and in color. And then when you get down there pretty close to the field, you realize that it's a different game. I mean, these guys are monsters, man. They're all huge. They're all fast. They're all strong. Like they are, I've been in the end zone on the field when, you know, Alabama took the field and, you know, it's absolutely amazing. Like you just don't, TV don't do that for you. You know, like you don't get that uh, from watching it. You know, you have to be there and see it to no, completely understand I, I, it. I've had, golly, I've had the best seat in the house for the last three years. Right. Because I'm usually about, I'll be somewhere between six and eight yards from Coach Drinkwitz because I keep the analytics book and I got to be fairly close. So I, no, man, the last three, three years. Sure. I've, a, I've had a great, great seat. What are some of the skills, you know, that, a coach drink or a coach Saban or, you know, a coach smart, like what are some hats they have to wear that maybe we don't have to wear on the high school level? Oh, golly, obviously the recruiting hat. Right. Uh, the, the overall management hat, because 
Uh, I heard somebody say that Matt Rule has 104 employees that mm. work directly for him. I think Coach Drinkwitz is probably around 60. And those are people that he actually is responsible for in, in the chain of command. And I, I don't think that as a high school coach, like when we were in Broken Arrow, we had five middle schools, two I-highs in, in high school and a JV team. We had 39 football coaches. And that's pretty. That's a pretty good-sized job. You know, like in Allen, Texas, or some of those guys, big management jobs. But I think a lot of it that people don't understand is just how much uh, organization, structure, process-driven work that the head coach has to do. Uh, that's one of the hats is, is the CEO. Sure. It's, it's a, and that's a job in and of itself. Uh, the other is, is the recruiting hat, and especially with the NIL. Um, I don't know how that works, even though I've been around there. I really don't know how it works, but I know ultimately it stops at his desk. Um, he works through the, the consortium, the foundations, the NIL group that we have and uh that's a lot that's that's a big hat to wear right just the way things are how to handle that how to manage that the other is uh that i would say is the uh fundraising aspect sure of it. we we had an indoor that was about 30 years old it was 70 yards long uh, it was in disrepair not in great shape, and I think essentially, I don't know exactly what happened, but I'm guessing that they said, hey, you can get a new indoor if you can raise the money. Right. Coach went and raised the money. I think that was almost 99.9% just him. Sure. Just going out and and raising the money to do that. So, and we don't have, you know, we do cookie dough sales. <laughs> <laughs> that's about the extent of our fundraising sure. and, and uh, the recruiting business. Just the the overall recruiting business sure. because so much of that is is perception as opposed to reality yep. and having to work with social media networks and things like that. Uh, constantly, the, the hat of management that you constantly are pushing, headed in a certain direction, providing a, a target and a path to success is is one of those now all high school coaches just do that they do that on a different level but they do that as well that's really not different but sure the fundraising the fundraising the actual nil stuff in the recruiting uh the business of recruiting and the organization structure of their hats that, that we as high school coaches have not had to do a whole lot sure and, and like coach drink probably is not sitting around right now having a conversation about stories from you know, 40 years ago either, is he? He's no, probably I, tied up in some. I, I cannot beat the guy to work. And sure. I tried. I can't beat him to work. And usually he, he is a, has an unbelievable work ethic. And, and uh, that they can say a lot. They can say whatever they want. They can't say the guy's sure. not a worker. Sure, sure. No doubt. Let me ask you this. This is, and we're narrowing down, man. I know we're getting to the end, and I'm grateful that you've spent the time you have. You know, one more story that I've heard you tell that was impactful to me is you had a kid show up to his group late. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and, and you know, when a kid shows up late, man, we want to really get on them, right? Like, yeah. you gotta be early. To be early is to be on time. To be on time is to be late. To be late is to be forgotten. Like, the kid shows up late, you know? Like, <laughs> tell me about that. Well, we were doing, it's really in, a, in the bigger context of 
no football program I've ever heard of says, hey, it's okay to be late. Sure. We all say we're not going to be late. The, the difference is how do you how do you implement, what's the process you go through if somebody's late? You know, and that, that's another story. But the other aspect of, of a lot of our programs is we're, you know, we'll say it, we'll write it all over the walls, yep. no excuses, no excuses. Uh, and basically that means we're not going to make excuses. And I was thinking about this even yesterday in that I, I forgot to do something that my wife asked me to do. And I just flat forgot. And I'm trying to think of all the excuses I could give her to try to pacify her. And, and it just hits me like a ton of bricks is that if it goes back to the words in your brain and how it affects your brain, yep. I'm trying to think of an excuse that can make my failure right. palatable. You know? <laughs> and uh, in our program at Greenwood and, and even at the University of Missouri, you know, we got well, no excuses. There's no excuses. Sure. You get beat by Alabama, no excuse. You know, if, if you jump off sides, no excuse. If you, you do this or you're late to a class, no excuse. And so we have that mentality, no excuse, no excuse, no excuse, because it changes our brain. It changes the way we look at things. And when you get your tail beat, your first thought isn't to make an excuse. Your first thought is, why did we get beat? Sure. And what can we do to change it? Or you could say, ah, oh, they were better, bigger, faster, blah, blah, blah. You just, sure. No, there's no excuses. We're not going to have excuses. And that's what we tried to instill in all of our players, you know, whether we were in Edmond, Oklahoma, or whether we were in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And at Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, we were doing circuit work. We were spread out all over our area of the campus, and we're doing circuit work. We got in most county fair, whatever you want sure. to call it. And we're spreading from group to group, group to group. And, and I had... <laughs> I'm at the end group, and I walk back to the middle group, and Michael is there late. He gets there on the rotation late, and I go, I was not nice to Michael because, you know, sprinting from drill to drill is just part of what we sure. do. And I said, Michael, why were you late? Why were you late getting here? And he goes, Coach, uh, you know, and I tell he's nervous. And he, he won't – and I'm trying to make sure that he understands that he's got to tell me why he was late without making an excuse. And he, and he couldn't – think of anything so he looks at me and he says coach I, I can't make excuses and I said that's exactly right you can't make excuses why are you late to drill he said coach my leg fell off <laughs> and the thing that's unique about Michael is that he only had one leg um, he had had a he had gotten an infection when he was a nine-year-old boy and they had amputated his leg from right below the knee so Michael played football with a prosthesis and evidently it didn't happen very often, but every once in a while, his prosthesis would get pulled off or come off or whatever happened. I think it was, a, I don't know, a suction of some sure. sort. And, uh, but he did not want to tell me that his leg had fallen wow. off while he, got, while he got to a drill because he couldn't make excuses. And I've never forgotten that because, you know, frankly, when I was making trying to figure out an excuse to my wife, I, I one thing I couldn't say is that my leg fell off. Sure. You know what I'm saying? So... It just, it's stuck in my mind is that if we create that mentality and you have your, your player with one leg, um, not make excuses, you, you're somewhere. You know, I've coached a kid that was an all big eight offensive lineman uh, with one arm. Uh, I've coached a kid that was totally deaf. Uh, we've had a number of special ed kids 
Uh, we had a free safety at Broken Arrow that was a playing jack that was, you know, not great. Sure. Uh, academically, to say the least. He's, he's literally special ed. But I, Darcher, had no excuses for that. that but I think in this mentality of we're always making excuses for our failures is just a horrible way to train kids. Right. It's sure no way to train a football team. But I also think, and you, I know you believe the same thing, is that it's, this is life skills training. It's not right. football. This is life skills training. And if we can teach our kids, no excuse, period. Right. Your leg falls off, get there somewhere. Sure. You have to crawl or whatever. And uh, if they have that mentality when they leave the football field for the last time, then we've done our job. Yeah, and you know, the reason why I remember that story, and I remember it just like that, and I've heard you tell it a couple times, is our – you know, one of our philosophies is no BCD, you know, like we're not going to blame, complain or get defensive because nothing, nothing constructive comes out of that, you know, and, and that kid, you know, gives me perspective, you know, and everybody needs it, man. Everybody needs a thought that, you know, because what's natural is for us to think about an excuse for why something didn't go our way. That's the way our brain was, I think, created. So we have to instill in ourselves and in others around us. Well, Adam said that Eve. No doubt. And Eve said the serpent. <laughs> we started we started on that path right from the start. Amen. From the very beginning, we were blaming other people, and it's natural. Well, I appreciate you being with us today. If you've listened and I know you've enjoyed, you can go to CoachRickJones.com. Is that right? CoachRickJones.com. Yeah, I've got some blogs there. Um, if they want to reach out, I'd be happy if they want to reach out by email. Uh, rick.jones at missouri.edu uh, I'll give you myself 479-650-9950 if you have any questions or want to comment give me a call or shoot me a text you know what's what's crazy is is Rick has been such an influence on me he is the type of person that if you leave your cell phone number as a guy uh, Mark Miller did from Chick-fil-A, like Rick is that person that will call you. Well, I am too, you know. Howard Bihar, one of the original owners of Starbucks, left his cell phone number on a, a podcast I was watching, and I called him, and I said, man, that was the most fabulous podcast I've ever listened to. And since then, we have cultured a relationship. He was on our mastermind. I'm gonna interview him, you know, for our podcast here, so. You know, most people will not, but there are a few of us weirdos in the world that will strike up a conversation because we are truly interested in learning from others. My last question before we get off of here. Give me one person because you are a lifelong learner. You have, you have relationships with some outstanding people in this world. The Michael Lombardi's, the Sherry Coles, the, like your, your list of people that you have been in relationships with, you know, put yourself around is spectacular. This question, I don't know if it's ever been asked to you. Give me one person that you would like to have a conversation with that you have not. Oh, that's a great question. I, I think the reason that I have those people uh, that at least I, ha I can have a conversation with is because my only superpower, it, it's not anything other than I'm unembarrassable. Wow, just, amen. I have just decided that I'm not, I'm going to ask, and if they say, go fly kite, I'm good. I'm good. Um, I think of all the people 
good grief, that is such a hard mm-hmm. question. Um, I think probably, be- oh golly, alive or dead? Doesn't matter. Oh man, now you're hurting me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you really make it easy because I, if you give me both options, I, I would. I, I, and I've thought about this because I heard a question. You know, if you were going to have lunch, yes, who would be the three sure, people you sure. would have lunch? And I've thought about that many times. But I think, I think honestly, I w- if I had to pick one, I'd say Vince Lombardi. Mm, great uh, answer. I think one of the reasons that I am coaching today is because I, in the fifth or sixth grade, I read a book called uh, Instant Replay by Jerry Kramer. And I actually, I wrote Jerry Kramer uh, a couple years ago. I, don't, I never got a response. I don't know if he even got the letter. Uh, I think I, I mailed it through the Packers. Uh, but I, I read his book and I was so fascinated with the Vince Lombardi that he portrayed in that book because these are big, grown, sure. tough. Ray Nitschke, right? Henry Jordan, Herb Adderley, these are tough men. And they were in fear. It not I don't know if it's fear as much as just respect. Sure. Of uh, Vince Lombardi, and I, I would like to I would like to talk to Vince Lombardi. His, his background is so different because he's a what we'd call a Yankee, you know. Right. But uh, total different background. But I would if if I had to just have a cup of coffee and a conversation, I think I'd like Vince Lombardi. I think Bill Walsh might even be better in terms of just being a little bit. Good. I don't know with the times or whatever, but uh, sure. Bill Walsh would be a great one as well. Uh, and it, if in today's time, and this is, we're just dreaming anyway. It'd probably be uh, Belichick. Yeah, because for I sure. just don't think he would sit down with me and have a cup of coffee. So I, if I get to pick, I think I'd pick one that would sure. be at least likely to actually do it on their own. And you know, the thing that's interesting, Kevin Kelly. Uh, the former PA coach has yep. a relationship with Coach Belichick. He's been up there. He goes up there to visit, just hang yep. around, and Belichick had him do a 10-minute talk to the team. And sure. Said Tom Brady's on the front row, you know, with a notepad and a pencil. And if I walk into a room and I'm speaking to a group of people and I see Tom Brady on the front row with a pad and a pencil, I'm probably hoping I, I wore my extra large pins. Sure. <laughs> well, you know, my year, all my years of – going to the Alabama clinic, they will always bring in somebody that's fascinating to, you know, in the clinic. And without fail, Nick Saban's going to be sitting on the front row. He's going to have a notebook and he's going to have a pen and he's going to be writing notes as if he is learning something. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if he's really learning something, but by George, he's taking notes like he is. Well, um, I appreciate you, Rick. I appreciate you coming on here. I appreciate all of you that listen, man. It's been an awesome our i hope that you know you've got a lot from this you can also email me john perry at nixaschools.net or my cell phone number 662-582-0804 you know i want to make this great for you i want you to be able to learn from some of the most awesome fascinating people in the world so if you have constructive criticism for me send it to me i just want to make it great for you thank you so much for listening thank you rick for being here what a fantastic honor it has been to spend this time with you